5% of all UFO sightings can be immediately identified. It's the 5% that give you the release. Pilots chase them sometimes, but can't catch them. There are near misses between these things and commercial aircraft. And you saw the disc uh, of it. These are very hard to dismiss, the, the handful of sightings. A UFO in broad daylight near Paris. We suddenly observed a very bright red-orange object. It was oval. UFOs have interfered with missiles. I saw something that defied logic. Reported a strange craft, triangular in shape. On the triangular shape craft. Mystery craft being seen. Dark metallic in appearance. Flying craft. There's an orange orb. Glowing orb. A glowing orb. A giant ball of light. Glowing object. Could be aliens. Some form of alien spacecraft. Then in 1957, we have the Antonio Villas Boas incident in Brazil. A man named Antonio Villas Boas claimed to have been abducted and examined by aliens. He also claimed to have intercourse with an alien woman while he was on board the UFO ship, as this next video shows. The case of a young Brazilian farmer, Antonio Villas Boas, took place in 1957, four years before Betty and Barney Hill had their encounter. Antonio Villas Boas was uh, a farmer, uh, and basically, uh, it's, uh, chronologically speaking, would be the first abduction case. He claimed he saw an object come down out of the sky and land nearby. He reported that he was taken, captured by these two aliens that landed near his tractor. Villas Boas was taken inside the craft, and his clothes were taken from him. He was put in a chamber that filled up with a gas that made him sick. Most believe the gas was some sort of disinfectant. A naked female alien entered the chamber, and she and Villas Boas had sexual relations, even reporting that he was bit on the chin. He was then dropped off back in the field with his tractor, and the UFO took off. Vias Boas soon began to notice strange marks and burns on his body. He was examined by Olavo T. Fontes, a professor at the National School of Medicine. Fontes was a pioneer in Brazilian ufology, and a well-connected man with ties to the Brazilian government and military. Fontes diagnosed Villas Boas with radiation poisoning and declared that he was a good case, a case with merit. Antonio Villas Boas' claims of abduction are further supported that he never sought fame or tried to capitalize on his experience. In fact, the case wasn't even written or published until several years after. And he later um, actually became a lawyer and um, went to Brasilia 
and never profited from his uh, UFO experience. He eventually died of a very strange disease, and we never did know exactly what, but we do know he came to the United States and was tested at one of the medical universities in California. And after that, it wasn't too long before he passed away. In 1957, we have the Leveland UFO case in Leveland, Texas. And this is the account where numerous motorists reported seeing a glowing egg-shaped object which caused their vehicle's engines to actually shut down. When the object flew away, their vehicles restarted without a problem. In 1959, we have the Dyatlov Pass incident in Russia. And this is the account where several mysterious deaths of experienced skiers in the Ural Mountains is reported to have been caused by, quote, unidentified orange spheres and an unknown compelling force, as seen in this next video. February, 1959. A group of nine mountaineers embark on a winter trek into Russia's Ural Mountains. Their destination, a mountain called Otorten, which in the local Mansi language means do not go there. Among them were three experienced engineers, the rest were students. They were all young, I think the oldest was like 37 years old. They had conducted other hard tracks to the area. They were all experienced, strong-willed, determined people. On their fourth night out, bad weather forces the hikers to camp atop an area called Kolat Siako, which in Mansi translates to the Mountain of the Dead. It was a very inhospitable, very strange, very, very hard place to be. Snow, cold, freezing winds, and very few living things around. They decided that they would spend the night of February 1st in an open area, not too far away from the top of the mountain. They didn't want to go back to the forest one and a half kilometers because it would take them too much time and they will lose the day. Ten days later, when the nine adventurers failed to show up at their destination, military rescue teams search the area. They find the hikers camp abandoned and a tent that is badly damaged. The investigators determine that the tent has been cut and ripped open from the inside. And the hikers appeared to have fled the area in only socks or bare feet. This tent had been cut with knives from the interior. It was absolutely obvious that neither animals nor people had approached the tent to break in, meaning that nothing from this earth had approached them. Something was pushing them to run away without taking any clothing with them, without taking any supplies. They were behaving like they were in a daze, confused. The investigators follow the trail to the edge of the forest. But what they eventually find is beyond belief. All nine hikers died. They were discovered by Soviet troops in various stages of 
what can only be described as being mutilated. Their bodies were burned, some suffered radiation poisoning. In one case, a hiker's tongue was missing. They had prematurely aged, their skin was orange, their hair had turned gray. What could have explained this? Three of them had injuries that could be sustained when somebody is hit by a speeding car. Except the injuries were inside, their ribs were crushed like eggshells. Some of them entered their hearts, but there was no effect on their skin. It was like a force was directed at all of them. An unknown force had hit the hikers, and it was very selective in hitting only the hikers, leaving untouched the snow, the trees, and everything else around. The official explanation was that the nine died from hypothermia. But the chief investigator refused to sign off on the report and instead resigned from the inquiry. When the investigation was taking place by the local officials, one of the people in charge was removed quite quickly from the very investigation because he was very thorough and local officials didn't want this to come out. The authorities did their best to cover the whole thing up. It was practically forbidden to mention it. At the end, the bodies were buried in zinc coffins, I believe, so nobody would see. But there was enough of the investigation, enough people had seen what had been going on and were amazed at what they found, including the coloration of the corpses when they were found and other things, that news broke out. And this is one of the most mysterious murder cases in the former Soviet Union. I am convinced it was a murder, but they were not killed by anything we know. They were killed by an unknown force. Years later, members of the search party spoke out. According to their testimony, at the time of the incident, strange orange spheres or orbs were seen floating in the sky. These observations are from local people who saw some unidentified flying objects during the night of the hikers' deaths. I think there is a clear connection. Locals know they exist. It's like a part of life. They don't put too much attention to them, and they hope and pray that the fire spheres don't bother them. It's not a coincidence that UFOs were reported by these hikers in the Ural Mountains and the place of the dead, the do not go there, or so on, because I believe that many UFO sightings come in here from a parallel reality, and they come through portals. And in 1961, we had the Betty and Barney Hill abduction in New Hampshire. This is probably one of the most widely publicized alien abduction experiences around. Betty and Barney Hill reported that they had been kidnapped for a short time by a UFO while driving back from vacation, as this next video shows. Betty and Barney Hill might seem unlikely candidates to rewrite UFO history. Betty was a department supervisor in the state government. Barney worked for the Postal Service. They were driving home to New Hampshire from a vacation in Canada when their encounter began. 
As they motored down Route 3 in the isolated White Mountains, Betty noticed a curious star in the sky that seemed to be following their car. The hills stopped the car as the light got closer to them. Peering through binoculars, Barney reported seeing red, amber, and green flashing lights. Panicked, Barney jumped back in the car and started speeding down the road. When the hills arrived home to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, they realized that the trip had taken two hours longer than expected. Within days of their sighting, Betty Hill began having nightmares in which she and Barney were taken aboard a flying saucer and then medically examined. The Hills filed a sighting report with NICAP, a newly formed UFO research group. Then the emotional trauma from their experience prompted Barney and Betty Hill to seek the help of Dr. Benjamin Simon, a prominent Boston psychiatrist. Dr. Simon used hypnosis to treat the Hills over the course of several months. Betty and Barney Hill said the therapy helped them recover some memories of their missing two hours. Listening to recordings of these sessions brought back even more recollections. I try to maintain control so Betty cannot tell I am scared. God, I'm scared. It's all right. You can go right on and experience it. It will not hurt you now. I got to get my gun. Oh. I got to get my gun. All right. Oh. All right. That's all. All right. Just keep reasonably calm. And I put it in my coat. And then I get out with the binoculars. And it's there. And I look. I look. And it shifts over. And I think, I'm not afraid. I'll shoot it down if I'm not afraid. And I walk. I walk out. And I walk across the road. There it is, up there. Okay, all right. Calm down. Calm down. It's there. But you can see it, but it's not going to hurt you. Go on. Why doesn't it go away? Look at it. It's just a matter. Barney Hill would later make sketches to illustrate his story. It's very big. And it's... Not that far. And I can see it tilted toward me. Tilted? And what does it look like now when you say tilted? Did you see wings? Looks like a big, big pancake with windows and rows of windows. And rows of windows like a commercial plane? Rows of windows. They're not like a commercial plane because they curve around to the size of this pancake. And I look up and down the road. Can't somebody 
come, tell me this is not there. During her hypnotic regression, Betty Hill described the deeply disturbing events that she said took place inside the landed spacecraft. So then they rolled me over on my back, and the examiner has a long needle in his head, and I see the needle, and it, it's, it's bigger than any needle I've ever seen. And he, I asked him what he's going to do with it. And he said, just a simple test to vote And I asked him what. And he said, he just wants to put it in my navel. And it's just a simple test. And I don't know it will hurt. Don't do it. Don't do it. And even though it won't hurt. And he said, for days, put it in my navel. And I'm crying, and I tell her it's hurting, 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 it's the bizarre experience of Betty and Barney Hill became legendary as a cover story in Look magazine and a book entitled The Interrupted Journey. It was the first reported alien abduction in the United States. Their claim of alien abduction was also adapted into the 1975 television movie The UFO Incident. And it's important is such that many of Betty Hill's notes, tapes and other items have been placed in a permanent collection at the University of New Hampshire. And as of July in 2011, the site of the alleged abduction is actually marked by a state historical marker. And speaking of abductions by alleged UFOs, before we proceed, let's go ahead and categorize the seven different kinds of encounters with UFOs. First, we have the close encounter of the first kind, and that refers to a person just seeing a UFO. Then we have a close encounter of the second kind, and that refers to a person seeing a UFO with physical effects, such as heat, radiation, animal reactions, etc. Then there's the close encounter of the third kind, and that refers to a person seeing an actual alien-type creature. Then there's the close encounter of the fourth kind, and that refers to a person being abducted by a UFO. And the classic case of the close encounter of the fifth kind refers to a person having communication with a UFO or an alien. And the close encounter of the sixth kind refers to a person being injured or actually dying from a UFO. And a close encounter of the seventh kind refers to a person mating with a UFO occupant or alien. But in 1964, we have the Lonnie Zamora incident in New Mexico. Lonnie Zamora was a New Mexico police officer who reported a UFO sighting while on duty on Friday, April 24, 1964, near Socorro, New Mexico. His account received considerable coverage in the mass media and is sometimes regarded as one of the best documented yet most perplexing UFO reports, as this video clearly shows. Let's take a look. It happened in Socorro, New Mexico, here just outside of this quiet desert town. A state highway patrol officer, Lani Zamora, was on duty, as he had been for the past several years. 
a black Chevrolet was observed, speeding by the courthouse. Zamora put his highway patrol car into pursuit. Lonnie chased the car north on US 85. As he passed this hilly area, Zamora heard a roar and something caught his attention. 10 or 15 seconds passed. Lonnie then calls in to the sheriff's office. The time was about 5.45, I recall. He said, uh, uh, support to 1044, an accident. And then he said, I'll be 10 six out of the car, which meant that uh, I was going to be investigating a possible accident. And I went up this uh, road uh, about a half a mile, and then I stopped my car and got out and looked out. And I could see a white-looking uh, object in the distance. I thought it was an overturned car at first, uh, but I got into my patrol car and went up closer to it. And uh, when I started to get out of the car, I, could, uh, I heard a big roar. As I got to it, I could see uh, a couple of, uh, looked like a couple of uh, coveralls uh, hanging from a clothesline. I couldn't see what it was, but it looked like a couple of coveralls. Samoa called in, uh, he sounded very excited. He said he watched an object uh, lift up slowly and disappeared into the uh, sky very fast. I went down to uh, where the object had been and I noticed the brush was burning in several places. The uh, object had left four perpendicular impressions on the ground. I noticed that uh, several bushes were smoldering but they felt cold to the touch. I noticed what appeared to be a couple of oval uh, footprints on the ground. I knew Lonnie had seen something. The proof was right there. The incident was very interesting, to say the least. It seems to differ from practically all the earlier cases we investigated from one standpoint. The vehicle had left pod marks. There was an insignia observed by Lonnie Zamora on the side of the craft. The insignia was unidentifiable, not American, nor Russian. And last of all, the observation of these two people in some sort of suit. In fact, it was Zamora's account that helped persuade astronomer J. Allen Hynek, who was one of the primary investigators for the Air Force, that some UFO reports were an intriguing mystery. Also, several other independent witnesses reported either an egg-shaped craft or a bluish flame at roughly the same time, Zamora has his encounter in the same area, some of them just within minutes. And several other stories appeared in local newspapers in the succeeding days of other sightings of oval-shaped objects, including another landing with burned soil in northern New Mexico. In 1965, we have the Exeter incident in Exeter, New Hampshire, and here a UFO was observed by a teenager and two police officers. This sighting remains one of the best documented and best publicized in UFO history and is even celebrated by an annual event. In 1965, we also have the Kecksburg UFO incident in Pennsylvania, and this was a mass sighting of a falling UFO followed by a coordinating off of the crash site. It was reported to be an acorn-shaped UFO that had crashed into the woods and was purportedly taken away by military personnel. In 1966, we also see the Mothman sightings, and this was in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. It was a wave of sightings of a strange winged humanoid creature that began to be reported throughout the area and was reported to be connected to other mysterious events that included 
the sightings of UFOs. In 1966, we had the Wenaki Reservoir UFO sighting in New Jersey, and that was a UFO that was seen in the vicinity of the Wenaki Reservoir in New Jersey that led to traffic jams and overloaded police communications. It shifted color on a continual basis and reportedly shot down a beam of light towards the ice near the dam and maintained its position for another half hour and then flew off to the southeast. Then another UFO was sighted the next night flying in a zigzag pattern. The mayor, Warren Hagstrom, as well as Chief of Police Floyd Elston and Captain Joe Sisko watched the craft for some time. Then two reserve officers, Sergeant Ben Thompson and Patrolman Edward Wester, also witnessed the craft along with a number of other observers. In 1966, we had the Westfall UFO encounter in Australia, and this is the account where more than 200 students and teachers at two Victorian state schools witnessed a UFO that descended in a nearby open grass field. They described it as being a gray saucer with a slight purple hue, about twice the size of a family car. After about 20 minutes, the object climbed at high speed and departed towards the northwest, as this next video reveals back more than 40 years, witnessed by 200 people who say it was kept secret by the military. As Brian Seymour reports, more light is now being shone on Australia's Westall incident. This boy come running in saying, Mr. Greenwood, Mr. Greenwood, there's these things in the sky, there's these things in the sky. We looked up and we just saw this saucer type thing taking off. It wasn't a plane, it wasn't a balloon, it was nothing like that. A lot of the kids took off towards where it seemed to go. All the students were just running all over the place, uh, hysterical. Westville High School as a, as a teaching situation ceased. My girlfriend and I sat on the fence, climbed the fence, the school boundary, and we were crying, thinking it was the end of the world. For 44 years, the story of what happened at Westall has been largely untold or covered up. That afternoon, our principal called a, a special um, assembly and told us all not to talk about it. I was prepped uh, to tell the students that what they'd seen didn't exist. We were told that we weren't allowed to speak to the media. You've most likely heard about the best-known UFO encounter that occurred at Roswell, New Mexico in 1947. But the fifth greatest UFO mystery on the planet happened a world away, just southeast of Melbourne, in the suburb of Clayton South. It happened at Westall High School on Wednesday, April 6, 1966. Recess time, about 11 o'clock in the morning. Scientists and UFO experts have long known about the Aussie sighting, but until now, the details have been locked in our past. All I knew was what I saw, and it definitely was not any aircraft of the day, by any stretch of the imagination, and it certainly was not a weather blow. It was amazing, and something that you know, I've never forgotten. Victor Sukrusny was in second form when he says he had a very close encounter. After watching with over 150 other children a mysterious saucer-shaped craft land, he decided to approach it. You could feel heat about a metre away coming from it. was pretty warm or hot and then it just gradually lifted, lifted up and then went off towards the pines. We're talking about 200 people and um, a lot of them were kids too, they were at school. So I mean, uh, I think adults have got preconceptions about what a UFO might or may not be, but kids are a different matter. and. and um, yeah, when you've got 200 witnesses, either there was something strange in the tuck shop lunch that day, 
or there was something else going on. A news crew interviewed several students at the school right after the event, so filmmaker Shane Ryan tracked down the tape. But oddly, there was nothing there. I was absolutely devastated and nobody had any idea where it had gone. A teacher saw one of his colleagues who had taken pictures confronted by a man in a dark blue suit. It was demanded that she hand over, not the film, but the entire camera. However, one written account survives in the Dandenong Journal newspaper, which reported the occurrence, questioned the involvement of the military and the cover-up by school officials. One thing that we would really like would be that someone either from the police or the military would come forward and say, yes, they were there. Some of the surviving witnesses are appealing for those with official information to come forward. Incredibly, and despite the involvement of the Army, Air Force and police, there is not one single mention of the Westall incident in government files. You're asking me whether an R&D establishment would destroy evidence. Yes, of course they would. This was happening in the 60s, right, and in a lot of countries around the world, a lot of governments were quite worried about UFO sightings, not from the perspective of invasion, but mass hysteria. Documentary maker Shane Ryan has an obsession with what occurred at Westall. He's pieced together what is known and recorded scores of interviews with those school children who are all now in their 50s and 60s. I looked up and I was facing the object in the sky, and um, I just thought, oh, somebody's got some way of uh, projecting a film of something into the sky. I didn't believe that it was really happening. But um, my boss turned around and he saw it and we stood there looking at it for several minutes. They crossed and walked down here to this corner. After a while, um, trucks turned up with, um, it looked like army trucks. I was called down to the headmaster's office and there were two men in the headmaster's office, very well-dressed gentlemen um, in suits. They weren't introduced to me in person and I don't know where they came from. From my references now as an adult, I would say they were Asia. Then we went into, oh, and we suppose you think you saw a flying saucer. And I'm like, well, I didn't say that. I said I saw an object and, and we suppose you saw little green men. When I came out I think I burst into tears. They were certainly Australian government and I think it was part of their job to keep everything quiet. The authorities had found a way to silence the children but they still had unfinished business with the teacher Andrew Greenwood. He told me that two officers came to his home and threatened him under the Official Secrets Act. They said that he couldn't have seen a flying saucer at Westall because there were no such things as flying saucers. They threatened to tell people he was alcoholic, even though he wasn't. It was their job to, to squash what was being seen. It was a bunch of kids that saw this, so we would be able to squash this down. In 1966, we also had the Portage County UFO chase in Ohio. And in this report, several police officers were said to have pursued a UFO for about 30 minutes. In 1967, we also had the Falcon Lake incident in Canada. This is the account where a UFO's exhaust allegedly burned a man. 1967 was the close encounter of Cusack in France. And this is the story of a young brother and sister who claimed to have witnessed a UFO and its occupants. In 1967 was the Shag Harbor incident in Nova Scotia. A UFO was seen crashing into Shag Harbor in Nova Scotia whereupon a Canadian naval search followed. The incident was not only officially referred to as a UFO crash, 
but the crash left behind a strange yellow foam that of all things smelled like burning sulfur like this video shows. The officers wasted no time getting to the scene of the crash near an Irish moss plant overlooking the harbor. When officers first drove into the parking lot of the plant, there was already a crowd of locals gathering that were trying to figure out what was going on over in the waters of the sound. What they saw when they got there was a pale yellow light that appeared to be as much as eight feet above the surface of the water, and it was moving under its own power. It was moving in the direction of the uh, ebbing tide, but it seemed to be moving at a greater rate than that, and it was trailing a wide path of yellow foam. just looked like a yellow glow. That's all we could see. While we was watching it, there was three RCMP officers, myself, and I do not know who else was there that watched it just disappear. It disappeared different than anything I ever see. You couldn't, it didn't look like it sank, it didn't look like it went out. I don't know, it just disappeared. Whenever there was trouble on the water, the RCMP relied on local fishermen for help. Lawrence Smith was on his way to bed when he received an urgent phone call. We got out by the marker boys and up through the rocks and out by the prospect point wharf, and then we opened her up four feet. Smith and his crew were the first to get underway. Soon other fishermen raced to the scene, joining Smith in the search. We got there. No light, no people in the water where we thought there would be from a plane crash, and all we found was foam. Instead of wreckage, rescuers encountered a peculiar patch of foam. There was a little smell like sulfur, burnt sulfur. Several local fishermen who witnessed the foam felt most strongly that this was not normal tidal foam. Besides the fact that they're uh, acquainted with the local conditions, I mean, there were several key features that just uh, made it just stand apart. The sparkle, the way it dissipated, uh, the sheer amount of it and the density of it uh, implied something quite unusual. I have been fishing that area for 45 years. I, I have never seen any foam like that ever on the water. And if you were if you were motoring out through going fishing and you went through something like that, you would you would stop and say, What's been going on here? In nineteen sixty seven was the Shermer abduction in Nebraska. Sergeant Herbert Shermer claimed he was abducted by aliens after seeing a blurred white object that came out of what he had at first mistaken for a truck because of its blinking red lights. The white object not only communicated mentally with him, he says, but Shermer even said it prevented him from drawing his gun. Oddly enough, he also reported that the UFO occupants wore a badge that depicted a winged serpent. In 1968, we have the Minot Air Force Base instance in North Dakota, and this account involves Air Force claims that an unidentified aircraft buzzed the airbase, specifically the missile silos. The airmen who witnessed this encounter still have not received an adequate explanation as this next video shows. Across remote stretches of the northern United States, the Air Force kept ballistic missiles and B-52 bombers on constant alert. On the night of October the 24th, 1968, at Minot Air Force Base in Minot, North Dakota, 
Airman First Class Mike O'Connor was dispatched to make a routine repair at one of the missile sites. We made our turn to come down the road to the missile site and out of the corner of my eye I observed a what I thought was a farmer's yard light but it looked awful bright. Uh, as we proceeded down the road the object appeared to lift off the ground and parallel us down the road until we came to the missile site at which point uh, we got out of the truck and it just kind of hovered there. Staff Sergeant Bill Smith was in charge of security for 10 nuclear missiles. That night he reported seeing strange objects. These objects would rise, they would speed up, they would slow it down, they would hover, they would dart very quickly one way or the other. We were just not really sure that these were things that we could explain. The Minot control tower diverted a B-52 to investigate. Captain Brad Runyon was the B-52's co-pilot. The air traffic controller asked us if we would mind going out to this one area and uh, looking for something. I was curious and I said, well, what are we looking for? And they said, well, uh, you'll know it if you find it. The navigator on the B-52, Captain Patrick McCaslin, suddenly identified an object on his radar screen. I saw a return, faint one sweep, bright the next, large, off our right wing, three o'clock, at about three miles. And at that point, I asked the radar navigator to turn on the camera, which would then take pictures of whatever was on the radar screen. These pictures of the radar screen show the object flying in formation with the B-52. This thing was climbing out with us and maintaining the same heading we were. That was unusual. But what really watered my eyes when, was it, when this thing backed away and allowed us to turn inside of it. When the object suddenly disappeared from the radar, the bomber turned back to find it. Co-pilot Runyon was the first to spot what appeared to be a glowing craft hovering near the ground. When things like that are happening, it seems like time just stands still. My estimate overall object was uh, a minimum of 200 feet in diameter, and it was hundreds of feet long. It had a metallic cylinder attached to another a section that uh, was shaped like a crescent moon. I felt that this uh, crescent moon part was probably the uh, command center. I tried to look inside the thing, but all I could see was a yellow glow. At that point, I was fairly sure that, that I was looking at an alien spaceship, something that had come here from some other planet other than uh, Earth. Co-pilot Runyon and the other crew members of the B-52 reported their sighting when they returned to the base. According to Blue Book's investigation, the crew of the B-52 and 16 witnesses on the ground said they saw a UFO that night. In its final report, Blue Book concluded that they were all seeing stars. None of those pilots saw a star. I know those pilots. I know what their training was. I know uh, how many stars they'd seen in the course of their careers, and they were not looking at a star. 
it bothers me that Blue Book blew it off. I don't think this this uh, incident has ever been adequately explained. In 1969 was the famous Jimmy Carter UFO incident outside of uh, Leary, Georgia. And on one evening in 1969, two years before he became governor of Georgia, Jimmy Carter was preparing to give a speech when he spotted a strange object that was visible about 30 degrees above the horizon to the west of where he was standing. Carter described the object as being bright white and about as bright as the moon. It was said to have appeared to close in on where he was standing but stopped beyond a stand of pine trees some distance from him. It then changed color, first to blue, then to red, then back to white, before appearing to recede into the distance. He filed a report of the sighting, and since its writing, the report has been discussed several times by UFOologists and by members of the mainstream media, as this next video reveals. One fall evening in 1969, Georgia Governor Jimmy Carter was preparing for a speech in the little town of Leary when he spotted a bright object in the western sky. Carter describes his experience. There were about 20 of us standing outside of a little uh, restaurant, I believe, a high school uh, lunchroom, and a, a kind of a green light appeared in the western sky. This was right after sundown. And uh, it got, got brighter and brighter. And then eventually it disappeared. It was not, didn't have any uh, solid substance to it. It was just a, a very peculiar looking light. None of us could uh, understand what it was. In the 1970s, we had the Barry DeLong UFO incident in Maine. This is the account where Sheriff Barry A. DeLong witnessed a UFO and said, quote, they were hovering about 15 feet from my cruiser late at night. It had fixed spinning lights. The craft was a huge oval shape. I knew it wasn't a jet fighter. It slowly started backing off towards Sugarloaf and then accelerated at terrific speed. In 1973 was the Pascagoula abduction in Mississippi. And that's the account where an alien abduction is alleged to have occurred while the victims were fishing on the Pascagoula River, as this interview shows. Uh, last year on October the 16th, in the fall of the year, Calvin Parker and myself, we, uh, at that time we were employed by F.B. Walker and Son Shipyard in Pascagoula. Uh, and sometime during the day on October 11th, we decided to go fishing after work, something that I, I do you know, quite often when I'm not working is fishing. So after we got off work, uh, probably 4.30, I think, we were working nine hours a day. We, uh, I came home and uh, to get my fishing gear. So we tried, we uh, got our bait, and we got to the river and tried several spots, and the fish didn't seem to be biting. So there was one more spot that we were going to try. That it, uh, In the past, I'd caught fish there a lot of times at the old Shaw Peter shipyard. It's an old bandit shipyard. So we went... Um, about uh, back up the river to to the old shipyard and and um, it it become dark by that time. We do quite a bit of uh, 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 fishing after dark, you know, down here in that time of the year. So I don't know what attracted my attention. Where I had reached around to get more bait, which was sitting behind us, or uh, I heard some kind of zipping like sound, like uh, air of a steam or something escaping from a pipe. And as I turned around. I saw some uh, two blue flashing lights, or either pulsating lights, I'm not sure. And it seemed like um, it, it was some type of craft, and it seemed like it was almost down to the ground then. 
In fact, it was, it seemed to be about a, uh, a couple of feet, you know, above the ground. It just hovered there. So Calvin had turned by this time, and, and uh, he was looking at it, too. And really, I didn't know what to do. I just, it just, I was just spellbound there for a few minutes, just, and, um, and then almost immediately, some type of opening appeared in the, the end that was Taurus, with what I assumed to be the front end. And the, the light that had come outside, which is, it was real, real bright light. And three things appeared in the doorway uh, of the craft, and they seemed to just glide out, out of the craft. They never touched the ground. They seemed to just glide across, it must have been 25 or 30 feet from us, or, or maybe a little further than that. And they they came to us, just glided over to us, and, and uh, two of them took me by the arms from the side, and one took a hold of Calvin, and, and um, I seen Calvin go limp, and I didn't know it then, but he had fainted. So they um, they carried me inside the craft, and, and the light was almost blinding inside. In fact, for about three or four days, I had something like a bad welding flash in my eyes. And I can't I can't recall or I can't remember just what was on the inside simply because the light was so bright that I just couldn't couldn't make out what it was. But I didn't see any tables or chairs. And the room seemed to be round. Of course, that could have been because the light seemed to be glowing from the walls and the overhead and the ceiling. But they carried me, what, I guess about the middle of the room, and we would just seem to be suspended there. I, I, I couldn't move. I didn't have any feelings, no sensation of, of, uh, of any feel. And it seemed to, something like a big eye. I keep referring to it as an eye because it was about size for small baseball. In the end, it was focused toward me. It was a different color or a different light. And it seemed to come directly out from the wall, and it came within six or eight inches of my face. And, and uh, it, it remained there for a, a few minutes, and then it, very few minutes, and then it uh, went over my entire body. I, I'm assuming it did because when it went down like this, I seemed to be suspended there. And the next time I seen it, it was coming back up over this way. So I assumed that it went over my entire body. But it came back in front of my face and stayed there for a few more minutes, and then it seemed to just go right back into the wall. And these things, that, the, the, the way they were holding me, I was elevated because they, they weren't as tall as me, and they were upright, and I was elevated like this. And I could see, I could move my eyes on the thing that I could move. And I could see that they had released me, and I don't know where they went, whether they went outside the craft or, or another uh, room or compartment, but they didn't come in front of me. And they left me that way for for a few minutes, I don't know how long. And then after a while, they uh, I, I seen them then when they come back to the side of me and took hold of me again, and they carried me back outside the craft, and, and we were still just glad, and I, I wasn't touching anything that I know of. And they seemed to just glide back out to where they had taken me from and put me back down on the ground. Well, when they did, I, I fell because my legs were weak and they gave way on me. And it was this time that I seen Calvin again. He was standing there. He was standing facing the river with his arms outstretched, and he was almost in shock. Or he seemed to appear to me at that time he was something was wrong with him. But So I was trying to... To get to make my way toward him, and, and uh, I was crawling. I couldn't get my legs to working. But before I got to him, they, I, the strength of whatever it was came back to my legs, and I was getting up on my feet. And I heard the, the, the same sound I'd heard before—a zipping sound. 
And I glanced around and I saw the blue flashing lights and, and it was the crack was just gone, just just almost instantly. And I, I I got to I made it to Calvin and I shook him and, and was calling to him and it took me several minutes to get him where I could even even talk to him, you know, with any any sense and and he was going in shock. And these things that um that came out of the craft, they were about five or five foot four inches tall. And they didn't have a neck. Their uh, the the head seemed to come directly to the shoulders, and they had something that resembled a nose on a on a face, and and uh, about where ears would be was something that was uh, similar to the nose, only it was a little longer. They it seemed to come out almost to a point, and under the nose there was something like a slit for a mouth, and and uh, it was very wrinkled, and it it seemed it appeared to me to be something like an elephant skin, but I don't know where it was a a metal or what it was, but it seemed to be very wrinkled with the wrinkles running horizontal. And in the area where the eyes should have been, uh, it was so wrinkled that that I'm not even sure there was eyes. I don't I can't recall whether there was any eyes or not and Calvin says he came. But um anyway after I I brought I got Calvin where I could talk to him, we didn't know what to do and, and uh we were almost scared to death and we we first decided we wouldn't tell anyone, but the more we talked about it, the more we realized that we had to tell somebody. If it was the military authorities, if nobody else, so we called Keesler Air Force Base, which is only about it blocks you about 30 miles south of here. And I talked to someone there, and they told me that the Air Force didn't handle those things anymore; that we would have to go through our uh, sheriff's department. Well, then we, we hesitated again because, you know, you go to the, uh, the people just, something like that is not supposed to happen and when you would probably be laughed at and ridiculed. But we, we talked it over again and decided we would call the Sheriff's Department and uh, Sheriff Fred Diamond told us to come on over there that we talk about it. So we stayed there for several hours talking with them and them questioning us. And uh, the sheriff promised me that it wouldn't, uh, it wouldn't any news media know anything about it. That he would try to get get it to the proper authorities if he could find out who the proper authorities was, and have it investigated. So we went home that morning, and it was morning because they had kept us there quite late, and with assurance that no, uh, it, it wouldn't be any publicity about it at all. Well, we we went on to work that morning, uh, and. By seven or eight o'clock, uh, there was telephones ringing, uh, you know, all over the shipyard. And I called Fred Diamond, and he said that he don't know how the story leaked out from the sheriff's department, but uh, you know that by that time the whole world knew about it. You said something that was like an eye ran up and down your body. Do you think it was like examining you? Um, Yes, it was some. It, it had to be some type of examination. Well, I say had to be. It, it it appears to me that it would be. And after talking with a lot of scientists, and uh, um, I'm convinced that it was something that was that was some type of examination that it, that it, it did me. Did you communicate with these creatures, these things? No. Uh, and the only sound that they made, they didn't attempt to communicate with me. The only sound that 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 they made, one of them, and I'm not even sure it come from 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 one of the things, but it was some kind of mumbling-like sound, a low mumbling sound from one of them. In 1975 was the North Hudson Park UFO sightings in New Jersey, and this is the account that is considered to be a close encounter of the second and third kind. 
and is the case that introduced Bud Hopkins to UFO research, a key figure in future alien abduction research. Researcher Jerome Clark cites the incident as one of the best documented since the story was corroborated by numerous independent witnesses. In 1975 was the Travis Walton incident in Arizona, and this is the incident where logger Travis Walton reported to have been abducted by aliens for five days. Walton's six workmates uh, claimed to have witnessed the UFO at the start of his abduction, and Walton described the event in its aftermath in The Walton Experience, which was dramatized in the film Fire in the Sky, as this next interview shows. Travis Walton and a crew of six others were returning from working in the White Mountains of Arizona. What happened on their way home has become one of the best documented claims of alien abduction and a mystery that has remained unsolved to this day. On film, they can be evil, friendly, or ready for a fight. In the 90s movie Fire in the Sky, aliens abduct a logger from Snowflake, Arizona, while the other crew members look on. Travis, get out of there! But this was no fictional close encounter for Travis Walton. The movie is based on his personal story. What's it like for you to come back to these woods where, right off the road where the incident happened? Well, you know, it, it seems like uh, just yesterday, you know, in a way. Uh, a lot of those memories just are so uh, burned into my mind. So tell me what happened that night. We worked almost dark and uh, we loaded up our equipment. We're headed out of there. And there's uh, seven of us in the truck. We're driving along and we hadn't gone very far. And we saw, uh, saw this glow coming through the trees and we saw this object hovering there. Uh, and uh, it was unmistakable. Illustrations based on Travis's description show the object that made the crew stop in their tracks. Travis was the only one to get out of the truck for a closer look. As soon as I straightened up, bam, I just felt this uh, shock. It was kind of like an electric shock, actually, uh, but it, I just blacked out. The six other crew members witnessed the abduction. John Goulet was one of them. To be back out here again like this, that makes me kind of scared now. And you said you saw Travis lifted up in it. When I turned my head, he was crouched down like this, and when I looked back, he was kind of spread out. Fearing for their own lives, the men fled. They returned to the site later that night to find no sign of Travis. A massive search and investigation followed. When he didn't show up after the first two or three days, we scheduled polygraph examinations for the other individuals who were in the work group, and they all passed. So while this was going on, what was happening to you? Where were you? What are your memories of how you spent those five days? My first memory after a blacking out was uh, I was regaining consciousness very slowly. The instant that I saw these creatures and realized where I was, I just completely I just went crazy with fear. They had these huge eyes that just seemed to look right into me in this really unbearable way. How did you know it was real and not a dream? You know, they say pinch yourself. Well, <laughs> I was feeling a lot more pain than that. So, yeah, it was uh, very real. Five days later, Travis returned. And then you woke up where? 
I woke up, uh, I was lying face down, out of doors. I could recognize this uh, piece of highway as being outside of Hebert. You know, I ran down in here and it took all the strength I had left to, to make it to these phone booths. Travis's incredible explanation gained media attention far from the small town of Snowflake, but not everyone believed his story. They were treated very badly. A lot of people made fun of Travis and the whole crew. Does it bother you that people don't believe you? It used to bother me a lot more. Anymore, you know, I think the record speaks for itself. Has this event, this single event that happened when you were 22, mm -hmm. defined your life? Yeah, it defined my life for me, regrettably. If I had it to do over again, I, I, I'd never get out of the truck. 1976 was the Allagash abductions in Maine, and here four campers claim to have been abducted by alien life forms in the Allagash wilderness, as this next video shares. Let's take a look. In the summer of 1976, art students Charlie Fultz, Chuck Rack, and twins Jack and Jim Weiner traveled north from Boston into the wilderness of Maine. For nearly a week, the trip was everything they hoped it would be, a carefree escape from city life. On the fifth day, they camped near Smith Pond, an isolated, stump-filled swamp. It was a perfect spot for night fishing. It was also the place where their lives would change forever. There was no moon that night, it was real dark, and we didn't want to get lost, so we said, well, the thing to do is make a big fire so we can see it, and then we know which way to paddle when we want to get back to camp later. And it was quite, quite large, but we cleared around the fire, so. There was no problem. And these flames were leaping a good three or four feet up into the air. With their makeshift lighthouse aglow, the four men left their campsite behind. They paddled several hundred yards out into the pond, headed for a night of fishing they would never forget. And one they would later illustrate in their artwork. I remember being in the back of the canoe, paddling leisurely. The two twins were in the middle, Charlie was in the front and I remember they were having a conversation and I was focusing on on the night and the lake and the water and I began to feel observed and then uh, all of a sudden Chuck Rack who was at the back of the canoe said uh, holy mackerel what the is that and um, I turned around and looked and there was this huge bright light uh, that was hot coming out of the trees it seemed like it was rising out of the trees at first we thought it well it's got to be an airplane or something right so uh, we watched it for a few seconds and realized that it wasn't an airplane because it wasn't making any sound at all it was strange very strange it was a bright luminous yellow white and changing from that color in a very fluid liquid kind of a way and we were very very fascinated I, I was in a state of extreme euphoria I remember just feeling wow this is this is fantastic it was just alive and uh, when it was nearest us about a hundred yards away it paused 
And when it paused, I said to the fellows, I said, I'm going to shine the flashlight and see what it does. The instant he flashed his flashlight, this thing sent this beam of light out to us. And we were in a 16-foot aluminum Grumman canoe, which in the pitch black of night lit up like a Roman candle. We must have looked like this object just waiting to be approached on this lake. And all I can tell you is what was going through my mind was just uh, uh, exhilarating expectation. Just this is fantastic. This is something we can communicate with. It, it's tempting to communicate with us. I was completely shocked, and especially shocked that it reacted as quickly as it did, which told us there was some type of intelligence about it. And uh, as soon as it, this light came out, this thing started moving, and so we thought, well, you know, this is real. This is really happening. This is not a figment of our imagination. I mean, we've got to deal with this situation now, because within a few seconds, this thing is going to be right on us. I wasn't even interested in this thing anymore other than I didn't want to be as close to it as I was. I remember um, paddling as fast as I could and Jack saying, it's getting closer, it's getting closer. And then it was gone. The next thing they remembered, they were back on shore. And I thought, well, that's it. We've lost our chance. We've let it slip through our fingers. Um, and I observed it leaving and just gradually faded out. Exhausted, the four men stumbled back to their campsite. There they found the remains of their makeshift lighthouse, the fire that had been built to last for hours. The fire that was now just a pile of charred embers. At the time, no one gave it much thought, though it would later play a large role in their sighting. That night, nothing more was discussed. Not the fire, not the unknown object that had chased them only moments before. Sleep was the only thing on their minds. For years, the friends rarely talked about that strange night. Then, in 1978, memories of the sighting began to resurface. Jim Weiner had developed temporal epilepsy after a car accident and suffered periodic seizures. These fits were often triggered by sleep deprivation and by 1980 Jim was definitely not sleeping well. Vivid nightmares had become a perpetual torment. All I remember is seeing vague figures anthropomorphic in shape, but they did not seem human to me. They were um, around me, and they were either doing um, things with my genitals, or they were um, prodding me uh, with some types of instruments. Uh, there was an extreme feeling of malevolence. I mean, I was absolutely always felt terrified in this situation. For a time, Jim kept his nightmares secret. Then he confided in his brother. Jack Weiner's reaction was totally unexpected. So he starts telling me this, my nightmare, on the phone, and I go, holy mackerel, I've been having the same nightmares. What is going on here? 
There was no apparent explanation, but Jim was getting worse, his doctors growing more concerned. Repeatedly, they asked Jim what was wrong, and he finally revealed the nightmares. A psychiatrist working on the case said it sounded like an abduction experience. The doctor suggested that Jim speak to Ray Fowler, a UFO researcher. Jim repeated his story. Fowler took it seriously. Later, the other three also underwent hypnosis. Finally, four years after the incident, the details of that terrifying August night would emerge. I remember suddenly being enveloped in this tube of light. And I remember looking up and I, I thought, I was thinking about what the heck is that up there? You know, like what's up there? And that took a few seconds and then I looked back again and Chuck Rack's gone. The last thing I remembered was having both hands on the side of the canoe, looking out at the water to see if Chuck was in the water, and then not seeing him and thinking, oh my God, you know, where, where, what happened to Chuck? And then looking up, and then the next thing I remembered was this just intense feeling of almost like I was coming apart or something. That's the only way I can describe it. Then the next thing I remembered was uh, being on my back in this hazy environment, which was just like this nightmare that I'd been having. All four friends seemed to recall a similar traumatic experience. I'm lying on my back and I'm disoriented. I'm not sure where I am. As I'm forcing and struggling to get up, a face appears and looks straight down at me. They reminded me of insects. I remember thinking, my God, these things look like bugs. They had like uh, large eyes, almost like ants have. Um, they could have been goggles for all I know, but um, and they had some kind of clothing on, like spandex. I became focused on this thing's hand and realizing that it was not a hand like ours at all. And this one had me by the wrist and he was holding my arm up and he had something else in his hand. But it, I didn't like the looks of it. And I remember thinking, oh boy, here we go, I'm, this is it. I got five seconds to live, they're gonna cut me open, they're gonna dissect me, whatever. I just wanna get out of here, get me out of here. It would take hours under hypnosis before the four men fully detailed the alien examinations. Later, they recalled the peculiar events that brought them back down to Earth. They moved us again into this other space, this room. Then this area in front of me started changing somehow. It was doing something, it was some type of machine or something. It was very strange. And the last thing I remembered thinking was, here we go, I don't know what's going to happen next, but something is happening. Under regressive hypnosis, I remember the uh, uh, aliens trying to um, put me in the canoe. There was uh, one of them standing in the canoe over me, trying to uh, adjust my position in the back of the canoe, and another one was sort of waist deep in the water right next to me. And then, um, 
they tried to position Jim Wiener in front of me, but he's heavier, and they were having a hard, hard time with him. And then the other two were beamed right on land, and then Jim got out to join them. As their recollections took shape, the four men learned why their roaring campfire had seemed to burn out so quickly. To those who investigate abduction cases, it's known as missing time. Perhaps as much as three hours had passed during the abduction, from the time the men first saw the UFO until the time they found themselves standing on the beach. Meanwhile, their fire had burned down to embers. Hypnosis had restored their recollections of the missing time with unsparing intensity. But now there was no hiding from the memories, no hiding from the trauma of what had apparently happened at Smith Pond. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so, out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law, or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay, and if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar. Okay? The, the, another commandment says you shall not steal. Okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission... That's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. 
And finally, the Bible says, uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included, and that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news. The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com.
Billy Crone, and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.